Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. This is your host, Alex Collegian, and reporting from the road. I'm still traveling this great country of ours. I'm in Chicago, Illinois, for some pleasure and some business and some exciting things that I can't talk about right now, but maybe I will be able to soon. This is a very apt place to be because this week we're talking to the creator of the creator, Jim Collegian, who is my father, who uh, greenlit himself from very humble beginnings in Detroit and, uh, you know, public school education and worked his way up to a very successful uh, real estate and healthcare professional. And you'll hear about all the details of that. But obviously, this is a very personal one for me. And I did it as much to do an episode as it was to capture a moment in time because I have kids, he has grandkids, and you become very aware of time. Uh, I think when you become an adult, you're full grown, you look about the same for a long time. I mean, if you take care of yourself or you're genetically lucky, you, you look in the mirror, you're like, yeah, okay. But you see your child go from a, you know, something you can fit in one hand to taller than you in the case of my son, then, well, it makes you start thinking about time in a different way, especially that's a span of 18 years, right? And unfortunately, or fortunately, like I think a lot of us, a lot of y'all listening right now can relate to the fact that 18 years went by and you're kind of, you didn't know it. And time works differently in Los Angeles. There's really no seasons. So there's no subconscious pattern of change and time passage like Chicago, for example, you know, it's a fall day. It's cold, a little bit of rain, gray, not a lot of sun. And, uh, again, the lack makes you appreciate. So the lack of time that I have makes me appreciate time. And that's why I want to have my father on so that I can ask him questions as one adult to another. And I can capture that for my kids, their kids, their kids. So, you know, he's got a gift for gab. Doesn't come from nowhere. And uh, it's pretty interesting. And it's a little bit out of bounds of the, you know, the marching orders of, of this. But, you know, it is what it is, as one of someone once told me. But it's it's a good one. And it also, I, I would argue, it comes under the How I Got Greenland banner because it's about an American story. It's about how a simple guy from the Midwest greenlit himself to a very successful career and a, a family. And you know, it's an American tale. I think it's a goodie. And I think, you know, more than anything, a lot of the people that we've had on here have been inspirations, influences, mentors. So let's go straight to the source. Without further ado, this is Jim Collegian. I'm Alex Collegian, his son, and this is how I got greenlit. Welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, the podcast about the creation of creatives. I'm Alex Collegian, your host. I'm joined by Ryan Gibson, my co-host. Hi. So today we have a very special guest. A lot of our uh, a lot of our episodes, in fact, all our episodes, we uh, we covered the influences of our guests. Today we're going to talk to somebody who was a great influence on me, uh, my father, Edward James Collegian, uh, who um, probably they called him Big Ed, Big, <laughs> Big Jim, Big Ed, E James uh all kinds of stuff welcome dad thank you uh and he was a big influence in my early film knowledge because he was always a film lover and so i got to see a lot of uh older movies on the sort of saturday afternoon sunday afternoon uh um family classics and things like that. They showed it on WGN in Chicago. And so I saw Casablanca and Maltese Falcon and all the classics. 
And then we would go to the movies on Saturday and see, you know, they eat Chuck Nora, uh, whatever, Missing in Action 4 and uh, Cobra and uh, Steven Seagal and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, whatever was playing at the town and country mall cinema. And then if we had time, we would go to the arcade next to the – do you remember that, Dad? Do you remember the town and country cinema? Yes. Yeah. And my first movie uh, memory was you guys taking me to see Star Wars when we lived in Iowa uh, when it came out. But, um, you know, we're Ryan and I, we're in our second season now, and we wanted to start opening up the tent a little wider than just filmmakers, but talk about interesting people who have achieved things in their respective fields and try to dissect – you know, how they, how they got, uh, where they are, how, you know, what their influences are, what, what led them to achieve the things that they've achieved. So we thought we'd try it with my dad who, um, has achieved a lot in the field of real estate and specifically many stages. And we'll talk about that many different kinds of real estate, but, uh, probably most importantly in uh, the assisted living field, the health and wellness field of uh, assisted living. So anyway, um, thank you for joining us. I kind of forced you to as part of your rent to stay in. in my then apartment. you can put the gun down now. That's right. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so... Um, the way it works is we kind of talk about your beginnings and uh, just, you know, your origin story. And so you work in real estate. Uh, when did you know, was that an aspect of your life? And when you were younger, did your parents do it? Did you, anyone in your family work in real estate? How did, how did you find real estate or how did real estate find you? Uh, I initially got in real estate because of economic necessity. I was uh, a, um, city planner and uh, I had two children and I couldn't uh, raise my uh, f uh, family on the money I was making. And so I decided uh, to go into real estate, even though I didn't have the faintest idea about what I wanted to do in it. Is that because city planning is sort of the uh, municipal side of real estate? That's you would talk to developers and builders and stuff on a city planning side, or no? Uh, I uh, my responsibilities there. I worked on uh, uh, different activities going on in the city. Um, one of the things I did in Chicago was work on the third airport in the lake or the uh, also known as the daily misunderstanding and uh, which never went anywhere were they wait they were going to build uh, another airport other than add additionally to o'hare and um yeah they're going to put it in mid, right, midway in o'hare yeah right off the coast of chicago there was in a small lake yeah there was a small airport there called miggs field kind of equivalent to ryan we were talking about the santa monica airport a oh, small it, Small playing field. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, I loved it. I loved going downtown to Chicago and seeing like guys fire up their 172s and uh, take off right on the water. And actually, this is means nothing to no one, but back in the day, in like the old flight simulator days of like Microsoft first versions of Microsoft Flight Simulator, that was one of the best places to take off from because you could take off and see the Chicago skyline. Well, they were closing that down. And connecting uh, the uh, uh, ground, Chicago ground level, with um, the airport in the lake. Wow. And so did you, uh, were you for this idea or working for the, basically working for the city? Were you for this idea or were you like, oh, this is a bad idea? I, I thought it was a relatively bad idea and uh, <laughs> based on the mayor's ego. And uh, which that's mayor exactly was this at the time? Mayor Daly Sr. Yeah, this was Daly. And uh, that's exactly what happened to it. It was uh, too expensive, formulas didn't work, and everybody moved on. Mm. And you found yourself uh, moving into the private sector. 
to feed children. Yeah, I had to get another job because I couldn't afford to raise a family on the money I was making. Right. So, uh, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal every day, I saw these articles on real estate and said, hmm, that looks like a good place for me because I, I spent a lot of time in zoning with the city, working with the, uh, uh, the zoning board, and spent a lot of time working on uh, um, – what is known as a housing element of the master plan. So I thought I would get into housing in the private sector. Just remember the stories he told me of like working for the city. It was like half the people in the office were just there, you know, counting days to their pension. And then, uh, you know, there was always the two or three guys that were somehow related to the local aldermen. So they might, they may or may not show up or at all or show up drunk. Yeah, we had uh, what is known as phantom workers. And these were... Uh, No-show jobs. No, political guys that worked for the aldermen. They were just around the city payroll. And they only showed up uh, to pick up uh, their pay uh, every two weeks. <laughs> And most of them could not even show up sober. Are you saying that Chicago politics is in some way has some corrupt elements in it? Is that I think it's every city like that. No, no I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just telling you what happened. <laughs> So the, uh, the the project that I really liked was, uh, are you from Chicago initially? No, I grew up uh, in uh, Chicago's, uh, I grew up in Indiana, in the Chicago's uh, bastard well, uh, I, country um, yokel. One of Daly's prize ideas, which I really liked, was the Crosstown Expressway. Um, right. Which uh, right now you have to take... 94 all the way through Chicago and the downtown and then take it across to Indiana. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what the Crosstown Expressway would, would do is uh, pull out uh, uh, an area outside of Skokie and build an expressway to connect to the Eisenhower. Right which would completely bypass the downtown because if you've ever driven from West Lafayette or Indianapolis to Chicago proper, or if you have to go, let's say to Wisconsin uh, or even the West side of Chicago or the North side of Chicago, wherever, and you have to go through that. It, it I, in fact, I just recently yesterday read an article about the top 10 worst drives in America. <laughs> Takes you forever. <laughs> that would be, that was ranked, I think two or three. It was one or two. It was uh, Chicago. Now it was yeah. the 90, it was the, it was a 90 into the city, right? Yeah. Or from the airport or something. Yeah. It, it's brutal. Terrible. It, it's, two hours. And, yeah. and the road is antiquated. Uh, <laughs> Swiss by, cheese by modern standard. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And you drive literally through a moonscape of uh, 1940s or 30s uh, blast steel plants. 
Well, I thought you meant the moonscape of like potholes where. Well, that I think you covered that in your previous statement. I'm saying like when you look off to the to the lake to the to. Oh, you're talking about the old Rust Belt. uh, You're talking about in Indiana. Yeah, like right. Well, and it and it and it definitely germinates into into Illinois, but that whole part of that's just like old. uh, You know, I think there's steel plants, or you know, because the lake was such a uh, comp. You know, is a it was a, well it was commerce it was, a, it was yeah, that it was, commerce. was the way to get those the steel out was go through the saint lawrence river out into the ocean yeah you could make tanks um, and ship them all the yeah. way to to the atlantic from, from yeah yeah middle, and now it's river. funny every major city in this in the in, in the uh rust belt is now did that they all their rivers and lakes were uh, for the sort of shipping and now they're all shifting over to restaurants and bars and bike paths and uh, housing on this wa- on the water. Now, let me tell you what the problem is. What is the problem? Uh, uh, all the land adjacent to the Chicago River where the they had those plants is all polluted. It's all super fun, nasty, what? toxic bullshit. No. Yeah. yeah. Because I bought some of it. <laughs> and then they did like a and soil like, sample surprise. and it was like glowing. <laughs> Well, they um, the way they disposed of all the uh, toxic uh, materials, where they dug a hole and dumped them in they the land. It. Yeah, they buried it. This is uh, covered them over. Yep, my uh, grandfather was a designer of uh, transmissions for Borg Warner, and uh, that giant factory that made transmissions for a hundred years. When they closed it and they tore it down, they're like, "Hey, what's this uh, stuff back here?" It was like, oh, that's where we put all the poison in the earth. So. Wow. Yeah, same in L.A. All the uh, uh, JPL early rocket fuel experimentation. They they drove out 50 miles in the desert, did a bunch of experiments, and dumped God knows what into the soil. Cut to 50 years later, it's the middle of the valley. Well, here's here's one thing you wouldn't want to do, and then we got to go on. Yeah, was. Uh, City, if a city wants to sell uh, four or five acres of land for a dollar, don't buy it. <laughs> uh, I bought it, and it, co- the lesson. it cost a million dollars to eradicate <laughs> all the crap on the land. A million and one. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So, you're in Chicago, and then you got a job in Iowa as a developer, right? No. Or no. What was that? What was your first, like, so you, did you I have got to a get job. A, you I got, got a, your master's, right? Was that your way into real estate or how, what did you, did you have to educate, re-educate yourself or get a certificate or anything? Well, uh, uh, early days in education, I went to uh, Detroit public school system. That should be enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. A school of hard knocks. Yeah. I went to Detroit public yeah. school system. And then since family didn't have any money, uh, and I didn't have any grades. Uh, I went to a community college for about a year and a half. Well, uh, wait, you also got to check the time. It was the 60s and there was other college pressures involved or a guy your age, right? You you registered with the Marine Corps Reserve as well. No, I, I got fed up with going to a... Uh, 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 to a junior college in a neighborhood I hated, and uh, which was Highland Park, Michigan. And uh, I decided I got to get away. And uh, on a whim, I joined the reserve, which turned out to be a very good uh, decision of mine uh, because uh, I got called up, but they canceled the deployment to Vietnam. So I didn't go there. And everybody, I, I finished up college uh, after I got out of six months. And everybody I went to school with got drafted when they graduated. Wow. <laughs> Except me, because well, I was in a reserve. Right, but don't wax over the story. So just for everybody out there, uh, President Johnson had decided to mobilize the reserves, which was a large group of potential soldiers for the war. And that was viewed as an unpopular uh, Yeah, that was decision. April 5th, 1965. But they actually told you, the sergeant told you, prepare to leave. Kiss your loved ones and pack your bags. No, the captain said, uh, 
Um, you guys should prepare to leave before you go. We're having a going away party for you. So they threw you a going away party. Yeah. And what did you do? What did everybody do? Did they quit their jobs? Did they divorce their wives? Like what? Did they, what happened? They had to do all that. They because uh, they had to show back up in two weeks. So all these guys told their bosses to kiss their asses. Uh, that's probably what happened. And then at the last second, you're about to be mobilized, and they changed their mind. Yeah, President Johnson comes on the television and said, "We're not calling up the reserve." But you thought you were going for sure. Yeah, I told everybody that I didn't like uh, to shove it up sideways. <laughs> and uh, then when I didn't get called that, but I come back and, and re- uh, I had to come back and apologize and statement. said, put it up the right way, not sideways. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. So you got a bachelor's in education. You were going to be a teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, one fun story from your teaching days, you were teaching in Detroit as a substitute teacher and uh, Martin Luther King was shot. Yeah, I, uh, I, I taught school in the daytime so I could pay for graduate school because I was out of school at three o'clock and I went to a full-time graduate program at 530 to eight, three times, three nights a week. And uh, I could do that, and uh, teaching paid for it since it was $300 a semester. $300 a semester to get a master's. Yeah. Okay, then. There you go, folks. Uh, And so you're in a predominantly black neighborhood in a predominantly black public school, and you are the only white instructor, correct? I was the only white teacher in two schools. And the news comes on that Martin Luther King was shot and your fellow co-workers and teachers who were all African-American said what? They said, you're going to need some assistance to get out of the neighborhood because there's riots breaking out all over the neighborhood. And they escorted me out of the area. <sighs> wow. Uh, and I, I remember mom telling me she saw tanks going down her street. In Detroit in those days. Well, yeah, because they, uh, uh, at, at uh, Martin Luther King assassination riots, uh, they called up uh, not only the, re- the reserves. Or the uh, National Guard. National Guard they called up, but they sent in the 101st Airborne. And uh, there, there was a curfew. And you'd Martial see. Law. Yeah, you'd see the. Uh, uh, tanks on the street and jeeps would come down the side streets uh, with machine guns mounted on the back. And if you were walking around after 6 p.m., they stopped you and checked your ID and figure out where you were going. Wow. Tough time. Yeah. Okay. So you get your degree and you're going to reinvent yourself. And how, how, what was your first real estate job? Well, I I worked for the city for a couple of years as a planner. So that's so after that you were yeah. a planner. You didn't, and then I remember I went out to, uh, to Tucson as a principal planner. Spent a couple of years out there. Okay. And uh, then, the, as I told you, I was choking on the cowboy culture. <laughs> so and, you didn't. Uh, it didn't. So Arizona didn't agree with you. Well, I mean. When I was in Arizona, there wasn't even any people there. You know, yeah, there it was, was a different place. Three hundred thousand people in uh, in the metropolitan area. Yeah, and uh, I guess to stop my daytime drinking, I uh, I uh, signed up for a class at the University of Arizona in Tucson, a real estate class. Huh. Okay. So, so just I like got, a like a just a continuance course, an adult course, or a one, 101 course? No, it was a regular course. I just signed up for it. Yeah. College course. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I said, you know, with my planning background, housing background, and zoning background, this would be a good place for me. So I uh, found a job. And by the way, I didn't know anything. Um. I didn't have a broker's license. I wasn't a broker. I nothing. So I went to work with an investment company, and they used me 
to do uh, housing market analysis. They were apartment buyers and operators. Um, then one of the acquisition guys quit and they said, hey, Collegian, come on over here. We're going to make an acquisition guy. I says, well, help me spell it, well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just had a, I learned myself from the ground. Yeah. So you, you moved up to acquisitions and then you took a job in Iowa, right? For a developer? Yeah, I had, uh, uh, no, for a, for a REIT. For a REIT. What Work, is a REIT? Uh, Real Estate Investment uh, Trust. R-E-I-T, REIT. Yeah, and they uh, uh, they uh, did sale leasebacks on real estate. So they'd buy a project and then lease it back to the, uh, uh, Ten, they, so the, the, the now previous, tenants, previous owners. Yeah, right. and uh, then they would uh, uh, you know charge an interest rate or a staggered interest rate, whatever, on that lease. And basically what, what they were selling is income off the leases to the investors. And that was the McNeil company? No, McNeil company was a, a public limited partnership. And I left the REIT and went to them because they, uh, they offered me uh, uh, to be a regional director in Chicago for a public limited partnership. I worked for them for five years and uh, my territory was the Midwest, worked the Midwest states. So you were the guy who would fly to Cincinnati, Madison, Wisconsin, Terre Haute, yeah. Indiana, whatever, whatever. Yeah, the good news, I loved the territory. The bad news, I was gone traveling three days a week. Yeah. So uh, this was the guy, the the Mr. McNeil, Robert McNeil, and he would uh, walk you through a potential site, and he would smell the dirt. Was that his? Uh... Yeah, he would. Uh, now he was really working me. He would <laughs> pick up the dirt, uh, a pinch of dirt. He'd smell it and he'd put it on his tongue. And he'd say, "This is a good site to." Build. I like the taste of this. This is a good site. Is it that? <laughs> Isn't that exactly what Klondike did in the... Um, yeah, when he was looking for gold in the... Uh, <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But also keep in mind, do not do that when you buy the land for a, a dollar. dollar. Don't put it in your mouth. Yeah. No, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and this, was, this was the days when uh, they would take all their salesmen to Hawaii, and it was a different culture. It was more of that they were trying to build a, a team spirit, right? Yeah, they had uh, six uh, uh, regional managers around the country, and uh, they would uh, take them and, and their wives to to Florida every year, and they'd have you know three days of meetings with them, and then a couple of days left over where you stuck around with your wife at the hotel. When you went to work for him, did you and became a regional manager? Did your lifestyle change like overnight? It seemed like there was a, a big step there. Am I, am I misinterpreting that? Or yeah, not? I mean, yeah, we're talking about fixed wages uh, in in uh, the planning business and working for the REIT about twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year, and then making. Uh, uh, commissions of 125000 the first year. And so that was life-changing. Yeah, but it wasn't a green light. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> it wasn't that was a green light. A, that was a flashing yellow. Yeah. But it did let you, like, buy a house for the first time, right? And, yeah. like, you, you kind of you, – you grew up and you, you – I mean, I remember – I was – I'm old enough to remember when we rented, when we were in apartments and I would share a bedroom – and then you bought a house. Yeah, bought a house in um, in uh, uh, Buffalo, Buffalo Grove, Buffalo Michigan. Buffalo Grove, yeah, Buffalo That's Grove, right. Illinois. Yeah, yeah, in Buffalo Grove. I hope you're enjoying our talk with uh, Jim Collegian, my father. I'm here to remind you that there's plenty more where that came from at the How I Got Green Greenlit archive so please uh if you like what you're hearing go check out more and of course it could be right there at your fingertips uh at your local uh podcast provider that you're using there on your little dongle but if you're ever curious there's a whole howigotgreenlit.com archive 
where you can dig into all of the episodes that are archived and ready for you. One of my favorites was our talk with Eli Holtzman, producer uh, and now executive at Sony Television. Uh, he is a what, what many would call a reality pioneer, and um, he had a lot to say about a lot of stuff specific in general, but the, the best parts, I think, are where he talks about how easy it is to criticize. You can see others' faults, but it's very difficult in Hollywood to maintain an integrity in an industry that has very little. So check it out. People get desperate, you know, when the fucking Nazis fucking, you know, force everybody into a ghetto and wall it all off. Like, yeah, there are some people that go, you know what, I'm going to fucking collaborate to get my family some fucking extra soup because it's what's going to let us live another day. And it's really easy in our beautiful, comfortable, out of danger settings, you know, that we're in today to say, well, those guys are bad guys and they're bags of shit. But honestly, I don't know. I don't think you can know whether you're one of those people until you find yourself in those circumstances. And it takes a lot. I remember um, I was talking to my buddy Patrick about this. There was some situation and I'm, I'm, I'm like a, a big believer in like, you keep your word, you honor your commitments. And like a, one of the measures of a man is honoring your commitments when it's no longer profitable to do so. The facts on the ground have shifted and that had happened to me. And it was now going to cost, I don't remember, but it was like, it was going to cost seven figures to kind of do the right thing. And I could get away with not doing the right thing and keep that money. And I was talking to him about it and uh, it was obvious that I was going to do the right thing, but it's like kind of like just grump, you know, bitching about it. <laughs> it sucked to lose that money. And he said, yeah, integrity is really expensive, but what would you rather have? And for the rest of that interview and more, please go to the archive, howigotgreenlit.com, howigotgreenlit at a platform near you. And without further ado, let's get back to my talk with Big Papa, Jim Collegian. So, wow. So that's life-changing and you're all of what, mid-30s, 40? Yeah, I was about 30, 35. It's exciting. Um, okay. And so from there, you stayed in that space and, and sort of moved up to different companies or did, did you stay in apartment acquisition? No, I became, uh, you know, I became a uh, uh, acquisition uh, manager of four or five acquisition guys. We worked the national market. So I worked for a couple other firms uh, until uh, – they hit the calamity years. Uh, calamity years. Uh, um, that's after I decided to go into business for myself. The calamity <laughs> years. Yeah. And uh, this is when um, uh, Congress changed the tax law. Uh, that was uh, 1986. Yeah, that's why. Okay, so basically, you had a very advantageous. Uh, economic system where investor class could put their money into real estate and protect it from taxable incidents. So uh, let's say if a dentist invested $100,000 because you had uh, a lot of small investors, a dentist lost uh, invested $100,000 and he was in the project, uh, let's say less than five years. Uh, he got... Uh, 200 to possibly 230,000 in depreciation deductions and probably another 2030 in soft costs. So for that 100,000 he put in, he had a tax shelter of 230,000 when he went out at sale. And that advantage that uh that the real estate market took advantage of that that was changed by the what is that the tip o'neill congress in late 80s 86 86. 86 they changed the law um they no longer allowed the losses to pass through the to the limited partners uh except and nobody even knows about this anymore except that uh, a real estate principal uh, actively involved in real estate 
still gets active losses to offset income. But not these passive inventors, investors that made up the bulk of limited partnerships, nope. smaller yeah. and so, shares. Uh, you know, 60% of the industry went sideways after that. Right. Ended up going back selling shoes where they started. Kind of. So it was a boom to a bust with that. Move. Yeah. Okay. So that, uh, that bust, uh, you know, they really didn't wake up till after about uh, 92. Okay. So then what changed? Like, what did you do? So you went from a guy who, so it was rags to riches to rags. Right, you were in crisis for a few years there, right? Because oh yeah, you had built up a reputation and experience and clients and client base and active losses and network and losses and the whole pyramid was built on something that no longer existed. So what did you do? I had to reinvent. Okay, I, mean, uh, I, it, I feel a greenlit moment coming. Yeah, in this, it, you know, in. The course of somebody's career, uh, uh, for one way or another, they hit a stone wall. Uh, competition, divorce, dismemberment, uh, uh, all ceased. The economy, meteor strike, whatever. So the black swan event. Yeah, they got, a, can't they, they got a product, but they can't do anything with it because of outside circumstances. Well, I'm I'm the buggy whip guy. Right. It's the classic. I, I so sell they, buggy whips and then Henry Ford came to town. So they have to reinvent themselves. So what I did then is I looked at various areas of reinvention. Uh, the first area was uh, tax exempt bonds. I could. Uh, and this is working with nonprofits. I could uh, uh, contract the property bring in a nonprofit, assign that contract to the nonprofit, uh, sit down with a bond company and finance uh, 100% of the cost in a tax-exempt bond. So it seems like no matter what you've done in real estate, the knowledge of tax is a live-or-die function of it, right? Yeah. Well, you look at a tax-exempt bond back then, if you had a tax-exempt bond, people are paying 12, you're paying three. Okay. And uh, so that was that was option one. What what else was out there? For and we guy? did, I, I did a couple of those deals. You tried. And, uh, and in fact, I did some, I did one deal on a project they bought for McNeil. So uh, the answer is, I didn't think the volume was there to create a company. Okay. So you experimented, you tried a couple. It wasn't the, the return was not worth the time. The yeah, juice I, was uh, not worth the squeeze. I, I told you about my experiences uh, uh, getting involved in a, a syndicated land purchase outside of Santa Barbara. Uh, uh, 140 acre land. No, that's a, that's a that's an interesting story. So at that, so Santa Barbara is a small, uh, you know, very tony community north of Los Angeles, and very uh, development resistant. They have a nice small community. They like to keep it small and exclusive. And you had bought a bunch of land right on the water, right from the government, was it? No, uh, I got involved with uh, a major developer, uh, and he wanted to syndicate the land. There's 140 acres on a cliff overlooking the ocean outside of Santa Barbara. And I think I started doing that in 88. And uh, again, I'm gonna, later in, I'm going to go, what not to do? <laughs> Don't ever get into land development in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite part of that story is uh, eventually you had to have a waterfowl expert come in and camp on the land for a number of days to observe firsthand the waterfowl mating rituals. And that's because the uh, the state of California environmental department uh, department. I uh, wanted to make sure we were not uh, destroying wildlife that habitated on the uh, uh, hills overlooking the ocean. 
Well, that's a good gig. Waterfowl expert. I got to look into that. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's better than uh, 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 the county wanted to make sure we didn't kill all the butterflies. So you had a butterfly expert come in too. The county considered themselves a butterfly expert. <laughs> they wanted to make sure we didn't, because uh, on the coastline in Santa Barbara, a couple of times a year, there's just 10,000 uh, butterflies per square foot down there. They were more more interested in that than they were people living on the site. So, uh, you know, after uh, getting sued by the, uh, um, or denied by the water board and getting water on the site, fighting that, uh, fighting the state uh, regarding environmental impact on the site, um, fighting the students uh, and their uh, Hollywood financers concerning development uh, next to the water. Uh, I went to the, we weren't developing this. We, I did the fundraising on it. And we said to the developer, we're gone. Uh, we'll take uh, 60, 70% of our original investment. We're gone. So we, we took 60, 70%. I distributed it. Everybody was pissed. Um, the developer then uh, stayed there three more years uh, or approximately 400000 more in legal fees and uh, ended up uh, giving it to Habitat for America. What about I thought you said the money was out of Japan and it might have might have been yakuza based. No, no, that was the golf course down there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's not get caught in the weeds of the coastal landscape of Santa Barbara. So, yeah. uh so you're you're uh, so, so at that time you had limited, did you still have properties that were generating income or were you out of gas? I mean, were you worried? No, about- I had syndicated a, a couple of pro- properties with investors and I was living off the management fees. Okay. So, uh, but you kept meeting with people. Is that what you did? You called everybody you knew and you said, Hey, can I have lunch and ask you about your field and what's going on? Yeah, you, kept, a lot can, of research. And continued to look at networking. Uh, yeah, the the land fundraising was an example. Uh, was that could you create a business out of working with developers and raising capital for real estate development? Since Santa Barbara was going to be a uh, hundred and forty uh, uh, villas uh, on this big uh, hundred and fifty acre site, where they uh, left half the site vacant, and seven, uh, they built those units on seventy five acres. And then the butterflies would take the other 75. Yeah. And so you had stars in your eyes that if that came to pass, everything would change, right? That deal would, would deliver you from evil. Yeah. And it did not. It did not. That was uh, It was very, a 70, you, you had a 35% markdown at the end of it. You had to go to your investors and say, oops. Yeah, because they never, or else they'd never get the money back. Right. So you got some, not yeah. they lost some. Yeah, and they could have got a tax credit donation, but I think they would have uh, appreciated getting their money back then. So, tell me what assisted living looked like in 1992. Was there such a thing, or was it nursing homes? Well, I uh, um, I had started a um, uh, a real estate networking group called the Real Estate Investment Association back in 86, and uh, we had a couple hundred members. And the purpose of all of that was networking with uh, brokers, developers, lenders, lawyers, accountants, uh, to make new contacts uh, for real estate investment. So that's a potential idea is form a networking social group within your profession. Yeah, and I'm still the chairman. Uh, what's that? 35 years later? And there's uh, almost 600 members of that organization. We meet monthly. And through that group, you started meeting new people with new ideas and new sectors of business and things? Yeah, I did. That's where I met my partner, Jerry Finnis, of the last 25 years. Great. And what was he doing then? Uh, he had uh, got a master's degree uh uh, from um, Northwestern University in real estate. 
and he was working for a syndicator. And I got along with him very well. We had very similar ideas. Number one, we don't like working for anybody else. And uh, number two, uh, we're going to control our own destiny. Um, so we we did a, a I think we did uh, one real estate transaction and sat down and said, we can't do these one-offs. We have to have a plan for a long-term program. Um, so here was our limitations. We didn't have a lot of money, which is a big limitation in the real estate business. We didn't have a lot of money, personal money. To live on. Not to buy stuff, but just to live on while you found the money to buy stuff. Well, we could live on because we were very lucky having working wives. Um, So we could live out there, but we couldn't accumulate capital to... uh, Most how to succeed in business lists, the first, you know what the very first rule is? Pick your spouse well. Pick your spouse well. And the second one is pick your partner well if you're going into a partnership. Right. So we needed a product uh, and a way to generate money. So I, I started looking at a new program that uh, Congress had passed called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. Um, so again, at, again, taxes. Yeah, you submit a application to a state agency and... Uh, Based on their criteria, they select you to be a tax credit developer and award you credits. And what you do is you sell those credits to investors that creates the money to generate the new development. So we said, great, what's the product? You know, we right. didn't we didn't want to do, do you put that. Yeah, we didn't want to. We didn't want to do uh, apartments because we had so much competition in apartments. So we said, let's take a look at, uh, uh, we took a look at a a a Catholic high school that was uh, closed in Joliet, Illinois, and said, we could probably uh, uh, gift the gym uh, to the municipality uh, for the for community use, um, take the classroom buildings and create sixty apartment units, ones and twos. Uh, but we had to completely demo the building interior demo, uh, and then there was a single uh, no a two story attachment to the building uh, where the priests lived. Priest dormitory. So I said, what the hell are we going to do with that? Um, We could demo it, but it's so small, we can't create a lot of units out of it. So what we had to do to the entire building is bring in the bulldozers. We just bulldozed all the floors. And uh, we had to build up from there. So this first building was, your company is called Pathway. That was the beginning of the pathway yeah, that, story. Yeah, the pathway. Uh, um, we soon realized that you can't make any money off of twenty-five units. So that was the first project. Uh, uh, it cost ten million dollars to demo and re- reconstruct apartments in that unit. Twenty-five were assisted living, and and sixty were uh, apartments. So it was a half step into assisted living using your existing. Yeah, and uh, because it was in a low-income housing census tract, we got a 30% bonus on the credits. So with total cost at a $10 million deal, we probably had a $3 million first mortgage, uh, $2.5 million in equity, and the remainder being soft 1% money. Got it. Um, and that was the greenlit moment was the, the Joliet, the first, uh, do you still have that project in the portfolio? Yeah. Okay. 
And, and yeah, this is here's a way to develop a portfolio of properties uh, by understanding the programs and developing the relationships. And the developers have no equity in the project. So I would call that a greenlit moment. You found a new formula and you formed a partnership with different people that had different skill, overlapping skill sets. Yeah, we ended up building and we, we built our own management company. So, you know, at the end of the process, we probably had 900 employees. All the people that worked at the facilities. Yeah. And we, two years ago, we sold the management company. Okay. Uh, understanding we were phasing out. We're in the process of selling everything and phasing out now. Was there already a market or was this stuff, because I think this was the time in the, you know, 80s when, you know, the government was closing and I think Reagan did this a lot. They were closing uh, mental health, you know, public mental health facilities or what people called like crazy houses and and other government. Um, I remember you know, that uh, they were, you know, closing mental, uh, mental asylums. Yeah. And uh, they were supposed to, the Congress was supposed to uh, turn it over to the states and nobody. Well, and they were going to uh, provide additional housing, smaller um, uh, components, you know, 12 units here, 18 units here. Never materialized. 10 units here. And they didn't do that. And, and today they're still all on the street. Yeah. That's how they ended up on the street. Exactly. And so no facilities. And so were you would you consider yourself a pioneer when it came to because really what these assisted living what assisted living gives older Americans is a place to go. Of course there is a fee to that, but it goes where they can still live independently and be taken care of in case some you know, without calling an ambulance. Well, we or- certainly, uh, we certainly were in the beginnings of the affordable assisted living movement. The count, you're there, cutting edge. There, yeah, there are only four or five states in the union uh, that provide uh, uh, Med- Medicaid funding to create assisted living. None of them, surprisingly, are as good as the Illinois program. Right. Uh, Illinois has got about 60 projects in Illinois now uh, that they awarded licenses on. Right. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is, is that when folks get older and they, they're, they have medical issues and instead, and just can't stay at home, it's not safe or they need a little extra help. Especially uh, dementia. Yes. Especially with a lot of mental health uh, issues uh, and memory loss issues that happen uh, a lot more these days, it seems. The people have to, there has to be someone there in some way. And people, there are a lot of people in America who don't have the money to have a private nurse take care of them. With the tax credit program and Medicare, we had the ability to uh, bring assisted living services uh, to individuals who made under ten thousand a year—that's um, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a shame uh, we, that we provided don't have more them. Of that. You know, with between uh, uh, Illinois uh, uh, has a great program. We were food stamp providers. We were awarded uh, food stamp money uh, per per occupant per month. Um, and I don't know if that's staying or going away, but. Uh, that provided their board the amount of money that they uh, the, the state or uh, the feds paid us. Um, we saved many lives. That, that's kind of what I wanted to get to. Save many lives with uh, by combining a real estate program with a medical related program that nobody else had ever done in the United States. Yep. So. What you throughout this talk, you had a few like do's and don'ts. So as a as an older person who is you know near retirement and you're selling your your business and what and I know you teach a lot. Uh, you teach college courses. Uh, yeah, I DePaul, teach at DePaul University. DePaul University yeah. in Chicago, and you also do some stuff at uh, University of Florida in Gainesville. Yeah. Um, beyond the books. 
what are some words of wisdom for either young people starting and, and becoming curious about what they might do? Or more importantly, it seemed, it seemed that your greenlit moment happened in your middle age. You yeah. were in your 40s. Yeah. When you had a first success and then the entire landscape changed. So what you're saying is there's still a chance. So there's green, there's green lights throughout the, throughout your life, right? Yeah. Understand that in your career, you may may have to reinvent yourself three, four times in order to stay ahead. Um, because of circumstances completely out of your control. Uh, and you're, you'll be suffering because of those circumstances. So what you have to, uh, to do is, figure out where your niche is and then move into the niche. Our niche was um, uh, building uh, facilities uh, with no equity from the developer and the ability to connect state and federal programs to provide services to needy occupants of the building. Speaking of spotting uh, opportunities, tell the story about the South Florida apartment building that you saw a diamond in the rough. Well, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, I had was working with a uh, uh, life insurance company, and they told me they had this troubled property uh, that was a suburb of Miami. Uh, new property, a couple, you know, a couple years old, and this was uh, uh, that was the cocaine cowboy eighties, right? When was that? Well, this was uh, ninety eight. This was right after the hurricane that hit uh, east coast of uh, Miami. Uh, this project was damaged. There were twenty units where the windows were blown out, um, and there was a lot of interior damage. And this lender was saying, you know, the project's 50% occupied. They got 20 units that have to be repaired. Uh, so I said, let me go down and take a look at it because there's no substitute for on-site inspection. Get off the computer. Get off your ass. Get out in the field. Take a look at these projects. And, and meet the people. Look them in the eye. Well, that's why I go out on Saturdays. That's the only time you see who the tenants are on Saturdays. Um, meet government officials. Talk about all this stuff. Take a look at the competition. Well, this situation was pretty easy to sum up. Uh, um, the, uh, you had a lender who didn't know his ass from the hole in the ground um, who took the insurance proceeds to repair those 20 units and uh, offset the interest on the loans that the owner didn't pay. So rather than upgrade the property, they, they took the interest to uh, pay them. Uh, so you had an owner, uh, project was two years old. He never paid property taxes. He was in default. He was uh, a million, you know, a million dollars or so behind interest on his mortgage. And he had, he said, told the guy, take the money from insurance. We'll build up these units out of cash flow. Yeah. That and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. Okay. Nothing. When I, so I drive, I drive into the project, uh, uh, and Saturday afternoon about one o'clock, it goes through the, the gate area. And there is blatant narcotics distribution going on in the entrance of the property. You drive in the entrance, pick up your dope, and you drive out the exit. Nobody sees you because you're behind a wall. Okay. So I called, I had this investor in Las Vegas, and I called him up and I said, This is our deal. Uh, you have an investor who's uh, uh, afraid to come on the site and take a look at the building because two people were murdered on it. Uh, the neighborhood is a respectable middle-class neighborhood. Uh, 
the project has a lot of great features, except the criminal owner. Um, and the criminal tenants. Yep. <laughs> so what we did is we uh, put together a deal with a developer and sat down with a lender. Lender had uh, $10 million in the project. Um, we offered him $7 million for his loan, uh, which he agreed to sell. So he was selling his position for $7 million on a $10 million loan. The project was $2 million in arrears on property taxes. And when we looked at the 20 units that were damaged by the hurricane, uh, that was a million dollars of repair. So you started out with uh, people selling narcotics all over the project. Well, how'd you get rid of the drug dealers? Well, it's easy. Uh, if you know what you're doing. Number one, if you deal with county government, it takes nine months to get rid of a tenant in Dade County, Florida. Nine months. If you deal with uh, a, the police force and they are discovering a criminal act going on, it takes about an hour. <laughs> so the first thing I did when I went down to the site is I I bought a case of Johnny Walker red label scotch, went down to the police station and said, we're new to the neighborhood, Sergeant, I want you to give this to your men because we really appreciate local police. And by the way, could you set up a substation in our new apartment uh, for your bicycle troops? So he said, yeah, yeah, I, I, thank you very much. So he set up a substation and what they did uh, is they got rid of the, the dopies. <laughs> All I did was break through the doors and arrest them and haul them away. Um, I think they arrested 30 people on site, <laughs> and uh, that scared all the rest of them away. So we ended up with, uh, what well, that project was 25% occupied or excuse me, 50% occupied, we got on it. Um, after you kicked out the dopers, it was 25% occupied. That's funny. So we did the redevelopment. Uh, two years later, it was 98% occupied. And we sold it to a group of uh, South Americans who, interesting, brought cash to the closing for uh, $12 million. They brought $12 million in cash? Suitcases, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might I have, thought that I, was a little strange, they, but it, they, I wasn't questioning. But it was cash. It might have been. It was real. Oh, well, look, that's, that's, that's an incredible story. Thank you so much uh, for your words of wisdom and yeah. uh, for our audience, for Ryan Gibson and myself. And on a personal note, um, I think it's a great story. It's a great American tale is what I love about this story as a storyteller, uh, about a, a kid from nowhere with nothing. And you made, uh, you made quite, uh, what, what, uh, Steve jobs calls you made a dent in the universe of your own. Yeah. You hit a wall, you reinvent. Yeah. Got to keep well, going. That's, great the, story. that's the green light story. You hit right. a wall, you read The answer back. is green light thyself. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for a very special episode, everyone out there. You can reach us on how I got greenlit at Gmail or follow at how I got greenlit on Instagram at how I got greenlit on Twitter. Our guest has been Edward James Collegian. Uh, what uh, one might call the green lighter of myself and uh, as well as a uh, real estate professional in the Midwest and other points South and all North. over, all over Yeah, partner and founder of uh, uh, pathway to living. And also right. the real estate, uh, you're the chairman of the real estate. Uh, it's chairman of the real estate investors association of America. That's correct. Uh, and by the way, you've been at, at our annual cigar party on the Chicago River before. 
I would say I'm not familiar with Rhea's work, but Rhea's parties are world class. <laughs> they certainly are. <laughs> All right, gang. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Ryan, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Yeah, thank Very you. It was much. great. Great having All you right. on. Thanks for the awesome Catch story. Catch you next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Dad, Bye. for everything. Bye. I would like to thank my father for taking the time to do this. I would like to thank our producer, Pete Musto, for continuing to make this a real show and not some sort of ramblings of a madman or screaming into the abyss. Yeah, I mean, this was a good one, and he's a good dad, and I'm very proud of him, and I know he's proud of me, and um, I'm lucky to have him, and I'm lucky to know him and learn from him and continue to learn from him. So thanks, Pop, for everything. And uh, I hope my children made it this far. They're so bad about this stuff. You know, maybe when they're like 35, they'll finally get to this part of it. Like, hi, honey. I love you both. This is also dedicated to my daughter, Alessandra, and my son, David, uh, who almost certainly won't hear this until they have children of their own. And they're in some space uh, laundromat, folding space laundry, while listening to their space ear pods they found some archive uh, from my sarcophagi. While you are keeping out of your sarcophagus and you are walking erect amongst the living, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcast. Now, I've said this once and I'll say it a million times. I always made fun of this part. Smash that like and subscribe button, bro. But now i it's just like any karma it is um instant and continuous and acrimonious and uh perpetual please smash that like and subscribe button and while you're not slapping it and you're off your podcast and you're off in the great big social verse please follow us at how i got greenlit on instagram tiktok and x or email us at howigotgreenlit.com check our home base at howigotgreenlit.com. I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. It's as authentic as you're going to get. So take it or leave it. We like to talk about origin stories on this show. Uh, I like to figure out how other people got where they were and made what they made based on where they came from and who they knew and what they learned and what they picked up and the people that influenced them. And I certainly talk about my influences in film. This was probably my original influence because he took me to the movies. So thanks again, Pop. Thank you all for listening. This is how I got greenlit. And I am the president. Thanks. Next Chapter Podcasts.